Hey folks, this is John Lawrence, and I'm super excited to bring you this series of podcasts. I've collaborated with a couple of DNP students out of Marion University, and they have uh, brought you six educational podcasts on the fundamentals of anesthesia. And I'm so excited to get this out to you. We've been planning this for, I don't know, maybe close to a year, but uh, let me introduce them to you. So, I'm here today on the podcast with Skylar Ruschling. She is a second-year SRNA at Marion University in Indianapolis, Indiana. She attended Ball State University for her undergraduate education, where she earned her BSN in 2013. Skylar went on to work in the medical ICU at a level one trauma center in downtown Indianapolis for five years before returning to school to complete her doctorate of nursing practice degree. She is expected to graduate in May of 2020. And Ashley Scheel is also a second year SRNA at Marion University. She earned her BSN from Purdue University in 2012. Ashley worked as a nurse in the surgical ICU at the Radebush VA Medical Center in Indianapolis for six years before going back to anesthesia school. She is also expected to graduate in May of 2020 with her DMP degree. Uh, Skylar and Ashley, welcome to the podcast. Hey, John. Thanks. Hey everyone, I'm Skylar, and yeah, we're actually part of the inaugural class of um, the first nurse anesthesia program to open in Indiana. Um, so we're on track to earn our DMP degree, and in order to fulfill this degree, we're going to be completing a research project. So ours is titled "Podcasts as a Learning Adjunct in Nurse Anesthesia Education." Hey everyone, it's Ashley here. We became interested in this topic because we found ourselves listening to a lot of podcasts while driving to and from clinicals, and we thought it would be beneficial to be able to listen to foundational anesthesia content geared specifically towards SRNAs. Um, We're going to be measuring the satisfaction of SRNAs within our own program, but we really do hope that these podcasts help other SRNAs and CRNAs as well. Uh, We really want to thank you, John, for allowing us the opportunity to host our podcasts on From the Head of the Bed. Hey, I am so pumped about this. I think you all have done a really good job developing the content, and I can't wait to bring these episodes to people. So let's cut to the chase. Let's get to the shows. All right. So, Skylar, tell us a little bit about what you want to chat about in uh, in this podcast. What's the topic? All right. So today we're going to be talking about local anesthetics. And we're going to go into the different characteristics that local anesthetics have um, that affects their mechanism of action. Um, But before we get started on that part, I want to talk about the actual nerve fiber so we can have a little bit of a background reference to um, what we're talking about when we're talking about where local anesthetics actually um, take their action. Okay, cool. So, so nerve fibers and then moving down to mechanism of action and how they work. That sounds awesome. Let's, Let's get right to it. All right, so the nerve fiber, um, you probably remember that it is either myelinated or unmyelinated. And the myelination, it increases the speed of conduction, and it does this because it allows the action potential to actually jump from node to node on the unmyelinated sections. And these unmyelinated sections are called the nodes of Ranvier. And so this jumping from node to node is called saltatory conduction. So the myelination increases the speed of conduction by allowing this saltatory conduction to take place. So another factor that affects the speed of conduction for the nerve fibers is the diameter of the axon. And the larger the diameter of the axon, it's going to have an increase in the speed of conduction as well with the myelination. So there are different types of nerve fibers and they're separated into A, B, and C fibers. A fibers have the largest diameter 
They're the most myelinated, and they're also subcategorized into A-alpha, beta, gamma, and delta. And B fibers, they have light myelination, but it's a little less than the A group has. And the C fibers have no myelination at all, and they're actually the smallest in diameter. So these different fibers, they have um, different functions um, for each of them. So the A fibers, uh, A alpha, its function is proprioception and motor. Beta is touch and pressure. Gamma is muscle tone. Delta is pain, cold temperature, and touch. Beta, or sorry, the B fibers are preganglionic autonomic vasomotor. And the C fibers have two different types. If it's a sympathetic C fiber, it's going to be postganglionic vasomotor. And if it's the dorsal C fiber, it's going to be pain, warm temperature, and touch. That's great. So, so all these nerve fibers all have different characteristics. And um, that's important because these, that makes the local anesthetics block these nerve fibers at different rates. And um, blocking them at different rates is called a differential blockade. So the ability of a local anesthetic to block these nerves um, before was originally thought to just be related to the myelination and the um, diameter of the of the nerve fiber, but now we know that um, other factors play into it, and those factors are related to um, diffusion, related to the pKa of the local anesthetic, and the pH of the surrounding tissue um, that play into it. And we'll discuss the implications of the pKa on local anesthetics here in a minute. Um, but that order. Um, that the anesthetic blockade takes um, during that differential blockade, it's a little bit debated on depending on what source you're looking at. Um, however, Nagelhaut says that the earliest fibers to be blocked are the B and C fibers, and those are followed by the A, beta, gamma, and delta. Uh, so their onset is inter intermediate, and then the A alpha is the last to block. So, right. so that's really interesting. So, so, so break that down for us um, in terms of, you know, we give a nerve block. What are you going to see a patient lose first? You talked a little bit about what those fibers are related to in terms of touch, proprioception, motor function, that kind of stuff. So what's the patient going to lose first? And then how would you know if your block is, is really densely set up? What, what is a patient going to lose last? Okay, yeah. So the C fibers, if those um, ones are blocked first, we talked about how the dorsal root controls pain, temperature, and touch. Um, and then the A-alpha, those are the last to block. Those are proprioception and motor. So um, a patient may lose feeling of temperature. A lot of times people will take a cold alcohol swab to test their, um, test their block, see how it's setting up. And those feelings might be lost before motor is lost in that uh, A-alpha fiber. Yeah, that's great. I, I think that's important just to emphasize that, you know, folks are going to lose that sensation to touch pretty quickly, and, and then they're going to lose motor towards the end and proprioception somewhere in, in between. And that you know if someone's got a motor block, they've got a sensory block, which is important to remember clinically in terms of, you know, you're getting ready for surgical incision. So how do you, how do you know that someone's covered for sensory input, well, if they've got a good solid motor block set up, you know that they're covered from sensory standpoint. Yeah, that's a good point. Right, yeah, so it's it's nice to know uh, which fibers are blocking first so you can actually know why these things are happening in practice, what you're actually seeing and relating it back to the pharmacokinetics of it all. Great, all right, so what so else do you want to tell us about? 
Okay, so now that we've talked about the structure of the nerve fiber, we're going to talk about how the local anesthetic actually produces its action of blocking the nerve. And so to talk about that, the first thing we have to talk about is the voltage-gated sodium channel. Excellent. It's kind of the biggie with the local anesthetics. You want to remember that it's all focused around this voltage-gated sodium channel. So local anesthetics work by reversibly binding to this voltage-gated sodium channel, and the channel is either present in a resting, activated, or inactive state. And when the local anesthetic binds to it, it blocks the channel and it prevents an action potential from being propagated. And we'll talk about that propagation here in a minute, but I want to focus on um, those states for just a second. So the resting state is when the channel is at its resting membrane potential. And after, um, when it's in the resting membrane potential, it's kind of waiting to be stimulated. So um, the nerve gets stimulated and uh, the threshold potential is reached, which causes a conforma conformational change in that protein. And the channel goes from the resting state to the active state. And in the active state, the sodium can follow along its concentration gradient and move from outside to inside the cell. So originally, the outside the cell, there's a lot of sodium. And inside the cell, um, it doesn't have a lot of sodium. There's more potassium in it. So when that active state occurs and the channel opens, sodium is going to flow along its concentration gradient into the cell. Um, then the inactive state occurs when the channel is blocked and it creates an impermeable state that prevents an action potential from being propagated. And it stays at this point until the resting membrane potential is reached again and goes back into the resting state. So it's kind of that circular process that keeps going through all those states continuously. But uh, the local anesthetics work to block these states from continuing in their cycle. And the states are important to know because local anesthetics only bind to the voltage-gated sodium channel when it's in its active or inactive state. It can't bind to it when it's in its resting state. Um, and this is called the guarded receptor theory. And it's important to know that it can only bind in those two states because what happens is the more a channel is depolarized, the faster local anesthetic will work. And this is because it's spending more time in those active and inactive states. And this is called use dependence or phasic block. Um, they mean the same thing, just two different words to explain them. So use dependence and phasic block is when the more repetitively a sodium channel is getting polarized, it's going to be able to be in those active and inactive states more frequently, allowing the local anesthetic to bind and uh, exert its action. Now that we know that that's how local anesthetics are working on the sodium channel, let's talk about how that action potential gets propagated along the nerve. So the voltage-gated sodium channel is at resting membrane potential in the resting state like we talked about. And this is at negative 70 to negative 90 millivolts inside the cell. And inside the cell is more negative than outside the cell. So when the electrical impulse travels along the nerve, it stimulates the channel. It creates a conformational change in the protein, which opens the channel and turns it into the active state. And this allows the sodium to flow in through the concentration gradient from outside to inside the cell. And this causes a sudden influx of sodium. This sudden influx of sodium inside the cell creates the action potential and depolarizes the cell to about 20 millivolts. So now the concentration gradient has changed uh, inside the cell, so the sodium no longer wants to come in, it doesn't want to diffuse into the cell, 
and a lot of the potassium has actually moved out of the cell. Um, so the equilibrium in the inside the cell has now changed and it causes those the sodium channel to close into that inactive state that we talked about. And when it's in this inactive state, the sodium and potassium ATPase pump has to actively remove the sodium from inside the cell and exchange it for potassium. It wants to do this to get back to its resting membrane potential. So the pump works um, to move for every three sodium that the pump moves out and move two potassium back in. And it continues to do this until resting membrane potential is reached. And then again, we're back in that resting state and the process starts all over. So, okay, we talked about the voltage-gated sodium channel and we talked about how the action potential is propagated. So now we know that the local anesthetic works by plugging up that sodium channel and it, so that it doesn't allow the sodium to flow through the cell to depolarize and propagate that action potential along the nerve. So that's actually how the local anesthetic is blocking that nerve is it's physically plugging it up so that action potential cannot be propagated because the sodium can't flow through to depolarize that cell and the um, potential gets stopped right there. That's awesome, Skylar. Very, very good explanation of that. I think that that was really clear. Thank you. Yeah, I know it's a little long-winded and it kind of takes a little bit of time to wrap your mind around it, but just really thinking about what is that sodium channel actually doing and what's happening with the um, sodium outside and inside the cell will help you work through that process of um, you know, where is this anesthetic binding and how is it blocking this yeah. action potential from being propagated along the nerve? Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. So what's next in the process? Okay, so we've talked about the process of it all, but I want to talk about how the local anesthetic actually physically binds to that channel. Sweet. We know what happens, but let's talk about how it can physically bind to it. So local anesthetics, they're weak bases. We know that this means it has a higher pH um, than around 7.4, 7.5. It's not going to be so high, but um, you know it's a, around um, maybe 7.8 to uh, 8.5 or somewhere along there. It, it's it's a base, but it's not so strong. So local anesthetics are weak bases that dissociate into non-ionized and ionized portions when they're injected, and any time that I talk about something that's non-ionized or ionized. I want you guys to think about non-ionized means lipid soluble and ionized means water soluble. So that's going to become really important when we talk about um, the process of this all. So the local anesthetic is a weak base that dissociates into non-ionized, meaning lipid soluble, and ionized water soluble portions when it's injected. And the amount that it dissociates into is dependent on the pKa of the local anesthetic. And if you can remember back to farm, pKa is the pH that a drug exists as 50% ionized and 50% non-ionized in a solution. So, for example, I'm just going to make this drug up, but if you had a drug that had a pKa of 7.4, which is exactly the physiological pH of blood, and you injected it intravascularly, you would have 50% ionized and 50% non-ionized um, dissociation of the drug. So... Because a local anesthetic is a weak base and it's injected into a pH of 7.4, which is more acidic and has a slightly lower pH than what the local anesthetic will have, it's theoretically going to have 50% or more of an ionized portion depending on what the pKa of the local anesthetic is. So the higher your pKa and the further away from 7.4, the more ionized portion of the local anesthetic it'll dissociate into. And the closer the pKa is to the pH of the solution, 
uh, so closer to 7.4, the more non-ionized portion of the local anesthetic. And local or lidocaine, sorry, lidocaine has a pKa of 7.74. This is very close to 7.4. So when placed in the plasma, it'll dissociate into 65% ionized and 35% non-ionized. So we can see that's not very far off from the 50-50 because 7.74 is so close to the physiological pH of 7.4. Tetraphane, on the other hand, has a pK of 8.6. And so when this is placed in plasma with a pH of 7.4, it ends up being 95% ionized and 5% non-ionized. It has so much ionized um, portion because 8.6 is much further off from 7.4 um, than uh, lidocaine was, for example. So this is all important because once the local anesthetic is injected, the non-ionized, which remember is the lipid-soluble portion, can diffuse through the lipid bilayer into the cell. And once it's in the cell, a new equilibrium is formed between the non-ionized and ionized portions, and the ionized portion is what actually binds to a receptor inside the sodium channel. So the non-ionized, again, is what is responsible for bringing the local anesthetic into the cell, and the ionized portion is what actually binds to the sodium channel. That's awesome. That's a great explanation. So, so Skylar, what does that mean in terms of the practical application of PKA? It helps us understand uh, the speed of onset a little bit, but also, could you speak for, for just a brief minute what happens if physiologic pH shifts? What if someone becomes more acidotic in their pH shifts, but they've got a local block on board? What would more acidotic pH mean for how that block is going to respond in the body? Yeah, sure. So if your pH becomes more acidotic, so that means the um, pH is going to decrease and your pKa of the local anesthetic is the same, you're going to get a bigger gap between the two. So the pKa of the local anesthetic is going to be further away from that more acidotic pH, meaning that it's going to create more of an ionized portion. Um, with that more ionized portion, it's going to be harder for the local anesthetic to diffuse into the cell. Uh, so you're going to have a slower onset of action, and um, it may even cause something called ion trapping, which is where it gets stuck in wherever wherever it has diffused into, um, say it was your local anesthetic is in the brain, it's in that blood brain barrier. Um, if the pH of your blood shifts, it's more acidotic, it, that local anesthetic is not going to be able to diffuse out of that blood brain barrier as quickly as it normally would have been. Um, so that can definitely have some implications um, as far as ionization goes and the pH changing. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, is there anything else that you want to let us know about PKA before we move on? Um, we're going to keep bringing up PKA throughout, but um, just hold on to that concept of the further your PKA is away from physiological pH, the more non-ionized, sorry, let me say that again. The further your PKA is from the physiological pH of 7.4, the more ionized portion that you're going to have, and it's going to slow the onset uh, of your anesthetic. So you want more non-ionized because that non-ionized is the lipid-soluble portion. So just hold on to that, um, that basic information, and we'll keep bringing it up when we talk about the other characteristics of the local anesthetics. That's awesome. That's awesome. So where are we going next? All right, so let's talk about the <clears throat> chemical structure of the local anesthetics. Um, local anesthetics are either esters or they're amides, and the ester and amide 
part of a local anesthetic is the chemical linkage that binds a benzene ring with the amine portion. And the benzene ring is responsible for the lipophilic characteristics of a local anesthetic, while the amine portion is responsible for the hydrophilic characteristics. And the ester or amide linkage is what binds the two. And this ester or amide classification can tell you a lot about uh, the characteristics that a local anesthetic will have. It determines metabolism, duration, and allergic potential. So if you're able to tell, um, know which local anesthetic is which of the esters and amides, you'll automatically know a lot about how that an local anesthetic will behave. And an easy way to remember which ones are which is that esters have one eye in the name and amides have two eyes in the name. So the esters are procaine, chloroprocaine, tetracaine, cocaine, and benzocaine, and the amides are lidocaine, mepivacaine, prilocaine, bupivacaine, and ropivacaine. It's not as easy to tell what I'm saying them out loud, but if you were to see them written down on paper, you could say see that the esters have one eye and the amides have two eyes. Which is so, awesome. That's a, that's a very clever way to remember which is which. And again, I, I would emphasize that in the word ester, there is no eye, but then obviously in the word amide, you have an eye, which is your cognitive trigger point to remember that there are two eyes in all of the local anesthetics that are amides and only one eye in the esters. Yeah, that's perfect. So the ester or amide classification, like I said, determines the metabolism duration allergic potential. So esters are metabolized by plasma and tissue cholinesterases. So therefore they have a rapid metabolism, whereas amides are metabolized in the liver by P450 enzymes. It takes a lot longer for the amide to travel to liver and be metabolized, and this makes them more likely to build up significant blood levels if rapid systemic absorption were to occur. So that's something you want to keep in mind when administering an amide. Um, they're more likely to um, cause toxic levels than systemic circulation. And esters also have a higher allergy potential than amides do. Uh, esters have a cross-sensitivity to each other, so if you're allergic to one of the esters, all other esters should be avoided, and an amide can be given instead. Amide's allergy potential is extremely rare, and they also have no cross-sensitivity with each other or with the esters. Uh, so that's important to know if you ever see a um, local anesthetic uh, allergy on your patient's chart. Like we said, with the metabolism, esters are short-acting due to their fast metabolism by the plasma and tissue cholinesterases. And I just want to note that of all of the esters, even though they're short-acting, tetracaine is the longest-acting ester. So that might just be a little point to remember. Um, and amides are longer-acting, like we said, because they travel to the liver for metabolism. Um, but they're also more lipophilic and protein-bound, which... Um, causes them to be more longer acting. And we'll discuss the implications of those characteristics, the lipophilic and protein bound characteristics um, coming up here. Yeah, that's great, that's great. So I think you, you hit a couple of important points there. You know, the different metabolism by the amides and the esters are, are important to remember and how that works. And then also the idea of which class is more likely to cause an allergic reaction, which would be the esters. And again, that's related to the, the hydrolysis uh, of the esters, which leads to the formation of uh, PABA, or paraminobenzoic acid, which is more uh, likely to cause the allergic reaction. And then your point about, um, you know, if someone was allergic to one class, uh, there is not a cross-sensitivity to the other class. So if you see that 
allergy to procaine or cocaine, you should know that someone would be safe and fine to receive lidocaine or bupivacaine or vice versa. Right. And yeah, it's easy to think of them in these two classes because if you just remember which class it's in, you'll remember all of these factors about the local anesthetic um, really quickly. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So what else do you want to tell us about? All right. So we're going to talk about um, the different characteristics that local anesthetics have. So their potency, duration of action, their onset of action, um, that kind of stuff. So we'll start off with potency. Great. And potency is related to the lipid solubility of the drug. So the more lipid soluble, the more potent because it can cross the lipid membrane more easily. And if you have an increased lipid solubility, it's also going to correlate with increased protein binding and a greater affinity for that sodium channel that we talked about. So if it has this increased protein binding and this greater affinity, it's going to be less likely to be washed away from the nerve and the surrounding tissues. So it's going to be... Um, around longer to get into the uh, nerve fiber and therefore it's going to be more potent. What affects the potency in the structure of the local anesthetic is that benzene ring and amine portion that we talked about. So remember that the benzene ring is responsible for the lipophilic characteristics and the amine portion are responsible for the hydrophilic characteristics. So these both affect the lipid solubility of the local anesthetics. And duration of action is also related to the lipid solubility as well as protein binding. Drugs with a higher affinity for proteins and lipids in the surrounding area, like we talked about, will have a longer duration of action because the local anesthetic is around longer to produce that conduction blockade. So, for example, bupivacaine is 95% protein bound and mepivacaine is only 65% protein bound. And bupivacaine lasts significantly longer than mepivacaine does. Um, other factors that affect the duration of action are the vascularity and blood flow in the area where the local anesthetic was injected. So the more vascular the increased blood flow that an area has, it's going to have shorter duration. And this is due to it being absorbed systemically more quickly. And it's important to know that the speed of absorption into systemic circulation is not the same in all parts of the body, and this is obviously due to changes in blood flow in different areas. So, um, for example, the duration is of the duration of action of a local anesthetic is much shorter in an intercostal tissue where it's very vascular um, compared to subcutaneous tissue. And local anesthetics, all of them except cocaine, ropivacaine, and lidocaine, they produce vasodilation. And this increases absorption as well. So that increased blood flow increases the systemic absorption and it decreases your duration of action. And this also increases the probability for systemic toxicity because the more that's absorbed, the um, higher level you're going to build up in your systemic circulation and it can cause um, toxic levels uh, more easily. So in these local anesthetics the, um, that cause the vasodilation, vasoconstrictors like epinephrine can be added to increase the duration of action. Um, so for example, dur the duration of action of bupivacaine without epi is 120 to 240 minutes. And if you add epinephrine to it, it increases to 180 to 420 minutes, which is a significant increase in the duration of action for bupivacaine. Yeah, that's great. That's a great point. And we're going to move on. So we talked about the duration of action. Let's talk about the onset of action now which is also related to the lipid solubility. And 
I hope you're catching on at this point that lipid solubility plays a major role in how local anesthetics uh, work in the body. So, so far it's affected the potency and the duration of action and now the onset of action as well. And the onset of action is also related to its chemical structure and ionization. And I know that we've talked a lot about lipid solubility and the PKA and I don't want people to get confused between the two. Um, while they both do affect how the local anesthetic crosses the lipid membrane, they are two different concepts. So I want to continue to go over those. The local anesthetics, so like we said, they have ionized and non-ionized portions of a drug, which are determined by its pKa. And again, the closer the pKa is to physiological pH, the more non-ionized and therefore lipid-soluble portion of the local anesthetic you'll have. And this will be a greater amount of drug that can readily cross the membrane. And then remember that the chemical structure, the benzene ring and the amine portions are what affect a local anesthetic's lipid solubility. This increased lipid solubility increases the ability to cross the lipid membrane and therefore increases the potency. Uh, between the two, the PKAX and the um, chemical structure uh, affecting the lipid solubility, the PKA and the ionization is most important. And this is because if a drug dissociates into more ionized portions than non-ionized portions, no matter what the chemical structure of the local anesthetic is, it will not be able to readily diffuse across the membrane. Um, so all factors play into it, but the PKA and how much the drug dissociates into the ionized and non-ionized portion, that it plays the um, most major role in um, how the local anesthetic is going to diffuse across that membrane. So. Remember that the higher portion of non-ionized, meaning you have a lower pKa of your local anesthetic that's closer to physiological pH, the more easily it's going to diffuse across that lipid bilayer. And lower pKa drugs with a more rapid onset include lidocaine, lipivacaine, and prilocaine, and their pKa is around 7.6 to 7.8, so that's very close to the 7.4 uh, physiological pH that we have. And the higher pKa drugs are bupivacaine, tetracaine, and procaine. Their pKa is around 8.1 to 8.6. They're much slower because they have more of an ionized portion because their pKa is a little bit further away from that 7.4 that we keep talking about. And I want to note that chloroprocaine is uh, an exception to this. And the reason that it's an exception is because it has a higher pKa, but it also has a fast onset which is the opposite of what we've been um, describing this whole time. So the reason that it is able to have such a fast onset with that higher pKa is because it's given at such high concentrations, and this is due to its low potency. So giving um, chloroprocaine at high concentrations counteracts that ionization effects, effect that it has and leads to the fast onset. So chloroprocaine, its max dose is... Uh, without epi is 800 milligrams, whereas lidocaine's max dose is 300 milligrams. So you can see that chloroprocaine is much less potent. It can be given at much higher doses, which is why it counteracts the high ionization content that it has. Um, there, I want to touch on, we kind of talked about it a little bit before when we were talking about the um, pH, if it becomes a little more acidic, what happens? And um, so this, the an acidic environment can affect a local anesthetic's onset of action um, as well. And so an example of this is if a local anesthetic is injected to it in a more acidic environment, um, an example of that would be an infected tissue, it renders the local anesthetic ineffective. And this is because there is a higher fraction of ionized 
portion that is uh, it dissociates into instead of the non-ionized lipid-soluble portion. And uh, this loss of lipid solubility prevents the absorption and access to that voltage-gated channel. So it, the local anesthetic just becomes ineffective. And again, if we think about it, if it's an acidic tissue, that pH is getting lower, it's getting further away from the pK of the local anesthetic, we're going to get a more increased portion of that ionized part. And we want more non-ionized to diffuse into the cell. So that makes sense why it would become ineffective if you were to inject it into an infected tissue or um, yeah. something along those lines. Which which is why we typically are not doing peripheral nerve blocks for IND washouts. So, you know, while opioids sparing multimodal analgesia and regional uh, anesthesia are very important tools, uh, you've got to understand how the local anesthetics work in terms of picking an anesthesia plan that's going to that's gonna be effective and make sense and also be safe. Right, exactly. Um, I remember in clinical I've seen they're going to um, amputate a toe and the toe has become infected. And um, I, looking back now, I wonder uh, how effective that local anesthetic actually was that wasn't uh, injected to, for analgesia, we had the patient under max sedation, but um, I don't know how effective that local anesthetic ended up being looking back on it now. Yeah, right, right. We know theoretically uh, it would be less effective. Right. Um, And then also local anesthetics come prepared in a slightly acidic formulation. This improves the stability of the drug in the vial, um, but if we think about it, it's going to increase the ionized portion. And so something that practitioners sometimes do is add sodium bicarb to the solution uh, right before administration, and this will increase the pH of the solution, so we're increasing the fraction of the non-ionized form of the drug. We're bringing that that pH closer up to the pKa of the local anesthetic. So this is going to increase the lipid solubility and lead to a more rapid onset. Um, And to do that, in practice, usually it's about one mil of uh, the sodium bicarb is 8.4%, so one mil of that per nine mils of whatever local anesthetic you're giving. Um, if you mix that up right before, it's going to increase that non, uh, portion of non-ionization and lead to a faster onset of action. That's awesome. So where where I most commonly see this in practice is if someone who has been laboring and they have an epidural in place and the plan shifts away from a natural vaginal birth towards a C-section, and you want to dose the epidural for your primary anesthetic for the C-section, and if it's somewhat urgent, you don't have a lot of time for the local to set up, then uh, you know you may pull out chloroprocaine if that's available at your institution, or lidocaine due to the rapid onset, and then if you want to speed that onset up a little bit more, then add some bicarb to the solution, and you'll get a denser block set up very quickly uh, through the epidural. That's probably where I see it most. Okay. I would say you know, a lot of regional blocks perioperatively, you're not in the same time constraints as you are with urgent C-sections and stuff. So uh, the bicarb isn't as important in in those blocks. Right, exactly. All right, so we've talked about absorption a couple times, but I want to touch on something that um, is very specific to local anesthetics and makes it different from all other drugs in regards to absorption. Yeah, great, great. So local anesthetics, they are injected at their site of action and systemic absorption takes them away. Whereas other drugs, they require systemic absorption to get to their site of action. So 
local anesthetics are completely different in that way, and it's important to recognize that when we're thinking about how they um, how they're producing their effects. So absorption for other drugs is great. We want that local anesthetics. It's going to decrease our duration of action. Um, and remember that local anesthetics cause vasodilation for the most part, and this is going to increase that absorption and decrease their duration of action. Um, so we talked about how you can add epinephrine to these local anesthetics to decrease this absor absorption. This usually works best with short or, or intermediate acting local anesthetics. Um, to produce that longer duration of action, it also produces a more profound block, and it does this by decreasing that vascular absorption, um, and it's not really so helpful in the long-acting local anesthetics. So just a point to know there. And the effectiveness of epinephrine is really not the same for all local anesthetic. It depends on the dose and the concentration of both the local anesthetic and the epinephrine, as well as the site of injection. The speed of absorption is like we said, it's not the same in all parts of the body, and this is because different parts of the body have different blood flow. So obviously, um, the intravascular space is going to have the fastest absorption um, of anywhere else that a local anesthetic is injected. It's going directly into the circulation, so it's going to be absorbed immediately. Um, following that, intrapleural also has very fast absorption, and this is because that area is very vascular. Following that, your intercostal space, caudal, epidural, femoral, and sciatic, and then finally subcutaneous has the uh, slowest absorption. Yeah, that's great. And so this is obviously a, a commonly tested concept, but beyond the implications of an exam, the reason it's commonly tested is because it's an important concept. It's an important concept in terms of safety. Uh, so just to highlight that, yeah, of course, an IV... Uh, a local anesthetic injected into the intravenous system is going to have uh, immediate onset and the fastest onset, which is important. I know you're you're headed down towards talking about local anesthetic systemic toxicity, so mm -hmm. so it's important to realize that you know if you inject this into a blood vessel, you're going to have very fast onset, very fast uptake, and a higher risk for uh, local anesthetic systemic toxicity. You know, which is practically speaking, why we draw back on syringes to see if we're in a vascular space while we're injecting. Uh, but then the the rest of that flow is very helpful in, just in terms of understanding the speed of uh, absorption and onset and how that's all going to uh, interplay with each other. So nice rundown on that. Yeah, exactly. So the total dose of the local anesthetic, we also want to know that um, that's going to affect the peak plasma concentration. And the total dose is not only the volume that you gave or the concentration, but is a factor of both of them. So for example, if you gave 40 mils of 1% lidocaine, this is going to have the same peak plasma concentration as 20 mils of 2% lidocaine. So that's something to keep in mind when administering them. You want to take into account um, the total dose that it's going to affect this peak plasma concentration. Yeah, that's great. And great point. Yeah, lastly, with absorption, protein binding also affects it. And we've talked about protein binding already, but it affects the absorption because the more protein-bound a local anesthetic is, the longer it's going to be present around that nerve before getting absorbed in the circulation. Um, so it's going to be around, uh, it's going to hang on longer to resist that absorption, I guess I should say. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So I want to talk quickly about a rare consequence of local anesthetic. We're going to get into last here in a minute, but first I want to talk about methemoglobinemia. Okay, great. It, it's rare, but it does, um, it does occur with Mostly prilocaine and benzocaine are the most common culprits of this. And what happens is 
So methemoglobin is an oxidized form of hemoglobin, and this oxidized form has a reduced oxygen carrying capacity. So if this methemoglobin uh, is produced, high concentrations will lead to tissue hypoxia and a shift to the left in your oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve. So we have to remember that a shift to the left means that hemoglobin has a higher affinity for oxygen, so it's less likely to release it at the tissue level, and this is going to lead to tissue hypoxia. Yeah, great. Excellent. And it's diagnosed through carbon monoxide oximetry lab testing or signs and symptoms. And of course, uh, our patient population is going to be the anesthetized patient. So signs and symptoms that you would see um, in the anesthetized patient would be hypoxia that does not improve with the increased FiO2, discoloration of blood, which is usually a chocolate brown color, and a normal PaO2 with an abnormally low pulse ox reading. So, like I said, benzocaine and prilocaine are the most common local anesthetics to cause methemoglobinemia. And the reason behind why benzocaine um, causing methemoglobin is not really clear, but as far as prilocaine, it produces a metabolite. The metabolite is otoluline, and it produces methemoglobinemia in a dose-dependent fashion. So the more metabolite it produces, it's going to build up that methemoglobin and potentially get to toxic levels. So... Benzocaine is typically used as a spray for topical anesthesia, and it's also sold over-the-counter as gels, sprays, and liquids. And most of the cases where met hemoglobin was caused by benzocaine, um, it was in teething children less than two years old. So, therefore, that's why they recommend that it not be used in children less than two years old is the recommendation on that. And um, as far as prilocaine, most of the cases that induced met hemoglobinemia were uh, when using the topical anesthetic called Emlacream, and this is a topical anesthetic that's often used in children. And uh, so their current recommendation for prilocaine is that it's not used in children less than six months in pregnant women and also in patients taking other oxidizing drugs that could oxidize that hemoglobin into methemoglobin. And the doses for prilocaine to, that are known to cause methemoglobinemia are 10 milligrams per kilogram or above 600 milligrams. The treatment for methemoglobinemia, um, well, first, normal levels of methemoglobin are 1%. So if they increase to over 20%, this is when you should think about treatment. And methylene blue is the treatment for methemoglobinemia, and it reduces methemoglobin back to hemoglobin. The dose for this is 1 to 2 milligrams per kilogram, given IV over 3 to 10 minutes, and it can be repeated if conditions worsen or you can just start at that higher dose of two milligrams per kilogram given initially if those uh, conditions have already worsened. That's awesome. That's a, that's a really solid rundown on methemoglobinemia. Yeah, no problem. So something that happens a little more often than methemoglobinemia, but although it's still rare, is LAST. And like I said, that's local anesthetic systemic toxicity. Again, it's rare, but it's usually a result from an accidental intravascular injection or if large volumes are absorbed um, from a block that had required large volumes of anesthetic, like a tumescent anesthetic. Um, and last occurs because the voltage-gated sodium, potassium, and calcium channels in the cardiac and central nervous systems, um, they become depressed. So detection of uh, last is usually present. If it's going to occur, you're going to usually see it within the first 60 seconds of IV injection or within one to five minutes if there was a partial injection or maybe there was some delayed circulation time. 
So these patients should always be monitored if uh, local anesthetics are being used, and um, especially in tumescent procedures, uh, last can present up to 30 minutes or longer. Um, so you'll want to monitor these patients during the initial injection and also um, afterwards for at least up to 30 minutes. And so last should be suspected if any of these following symptoms are present. The symptoms are categorized into central nervous system symptoms and cardiovascular symptoms. Uh, the central nervous system symptoms, there's excitation symptoms, which include agitation, confusion, muscle twitching, and seizures. Seizures is the most common of the central nervous system symptoms. Depressive symptoms include drowsiness, obtunded, apnea, and coma. And then the nonspecific central nervous system symptoms are metallic taste, circumoral numbness, diplopia, tinnitus, and dizziness. As far as the cardiovascular symptoms, you would see progressive hypotension, conduction blockade, bradycardia or asystole. Um, bradycardia and asystole are the most commonly seen um, symptoms uh, of the cardiovascular symptoms and also ventricular arrhythmias. And the symptoms usually progress from central nervous system excitement to seizures to central nervous system depression, followed by cardiac toxicity, and then finally cardiac depression. So they can occur in this linear fashion, but they also can occur simultaneously as well. So just keep that in mind. And then also, obviously our patients are usually sedated in some type of way. So these sedative drugs can prevent the ability to recognize these symptoms, unfortunately. So if last is suspected, your initial focus should be on airway management with 100% oxygen, seizure suppression with benzodiazepines, and BLS, ACLS protocols. And airway management is so extremely important during this time because we talked about it a little bit before, um, but if you have uh, respiratory depression, this can lead to hypoxia and acidosis. This acidosis can cause an increase in the ionized fraction of the local anesthetic in the cerebral circulation and inhibit the ability of it to cross the blood-brain barrier to leave the brain and re-enter circulation so that local anesthetic can get caught in the central nervous system, um, leading to prolonged and enhanced central nervous system toxicity. So that's why the airway management is extremely important um, which, during this time. Which is an awesome link back to the uh, microphysiological mechanisms of action of local anesthetic. Nice job. Pulling, right, like pull, it. Pulling like it said, all the way okay. back into airway management and managing local anesthetic systemic toxicity. Phenomenal. Yes. Yeah, PKA, like I said, it's just it's so important. It's going to go throughout this entire podcast. So remember you, that. You, uh, you, you may be one of the, the first people on a podcast to link PKA <laughs> with definitive airway management. That's awesome. Uh, so last treatment, let's talk about that. If last is severe progressing, you're going to want to initiate that lipid infusion. And the lipid infusion is the 20% lipid emulsion. And it's first given as a bolus at 1.5 mils per keg of lean body weight. And it's given IV over one minute. Then a continuous infusion is started at 0.25 mils per keg per minute. After five minutes, the bolus can be repeated up to two more times if cardiovascular collapse persists. And uh, you're going to want to do this not one right after the other. The boluses um, do them a few minutes apart. But the max cumulative dose should not exceed 10 mils per kilogram. 
And also the infusion can be doubled to a rate of 0.5 mils per kg per minute if the hypotension does persist. Uh, and continue this infusion for at least 10 minutes after the cardiovascular stability is achieved. And during this time, you're going to want to avoid vasopressin, calcium channel blockers, and beta blockers as well. Vasopressors are thought to reduce the effectiveness of the lipid emulsion. And uh, another note, if ventricular arrhythmias develop, it may be kind of obvious, but I want to just note it, do not use any local anesthetics like lidocaine or procainamide to control these ventricular arrhythmias. Amiodarone is the preferred agent in this situation. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Great. <laughs> Maybe obvious, but always good to know. Oh, sure. Yeah. Also, propofol, you'll want to avoid that as well. Um, some people think that because propofol has uh, a lipid content, it may be useful, but actually the doses are not high enough. Um, to benefit anyways, and also, obviously, there's cardiac depressant effects with propofol, so if there's any signs of cardiovascular instability, you're going to want to stay away from the propofol. Also, if epinephrine is um, required, you'll want to minimize your complete dose to less than one mic per kilogram that, uh, that's used. And lastly, if you're not at a facility that has the ability to perform cardiopulmonary bypass, You'll want to alert the nearest facility with those capabilities in case there is no response to the lipid emulsion therapy um, that is the um, final um, method that's used to control um, LAST. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Now let's talk about how to prevent LAST so we don't have to go through all those steps um, to treat it. So prevention can be done by using the lowest dose of a local anesthetic required to achieve an adequate extent and duration of a block. Factors that increase the likelihood of LAST are heart failure, ischemic heart disease, conduction abnormalities, metabolic or respiratory acidosis, medications that inhibit the sodium channels, and also a low ejection fraction. So keep those in mind in your practice as well. And administering three to five mil increments of your local anesthetic, um, waiting 15 to 30 seconds in between each. Injection um, can help to prevent last, and you'll also want to remember to aspirate the needle or catheter before injection to ensure you're not in an intravascular space. Like we talked about, um, the intravascular space, if you're injecting into that, it's almost an immediate um, action there. Uh, also, people use a pharmacological marker on injection to help ensure that they're not in the intravascular space. So this would be using epinephrine. And if 15 mics per mil are in adults is used, it'll produce a 10 or greater increase in heart rate or a 15 or greater increase in their systolic blood pressure. And this is in the absence of beta blockade, active labor, old age, or general neuroaxial anesthesia. And in children, you can use 0.5 mics per kilogram of epinephrine, and it'll produce a 15 or greater increase in their systolic blood pressure. Yeah, that's awesome. I want to circle back real quickly to, to the information that you just provided on giving three to five mil aliquots, waiting 15 to 30 seconds in between injection and then aspirating the needle. I just want to highlight that, that, you know, it's so much in, in our practice in anesthesia, we're focused on efficiency and doing things uh, quickly. And there may be the pressure of uh, production pressure and, and, and timing on all kinds of stuff, whether you're, you know, you're somewhat rushing to get uh, an epidural placed on a laboring patient who decided perhaps late or just however uh, the timing went down, you're there while she's contracting 
it may be the rush of trying to get into the OR to do a block at the end of a case or whatever. So there's, there's a time to move quickly in anesthesia, and then there's a time to slow down. And that's, that's an important marker of uh, developing your practice is knowing when to slow down. And I would say when you're injecting a local anesthetic, that's a time to slow down. You can, you can get fast at setting up a kit, prepping the skin, moving through those steps. But when you've got the syringe in your hand and you're injecting, it's a, it's a time to slow down. You definitely want to aspirate your needle and you definitely want to bump along uh, small injections of the medication and then wait to see if there is a response from those pharmacological markers, which is typically epinephrine. And that will really help you prevent, as you're, as you're communicating, local anesthetic systemic toxicity. So know when to go fast, but know when to slow down. Right. Yeah. Great point to make. Thank you. And last but not least, I just want to cover the max doses of some common local anesthetics that are typically used. Lidocaine without epi, its dose is 4.5 milligrams per kilogram, not to exceed 300 milligrams, and its duration of action is 30 to 60 minutes. Lidocaine with epinephrine is 7 milligrams per kilogram, not to exceed 400 milligrams, and its duration of action is 120 to 360 minutes. Bupivacaine without epinephrine is 2.5 milligrams per kilogram, not to exceed 175 milligrams, with a duration of action of 120 to 240 minutes. And ropivacaine is 3 milligrams, not to exceed 200 milligrams, with a duration of action of 120 to 360 minutes. That's awesome. Nice rundown on the on the classic max doses. You know, I think it's important for the SRNAs and other anesthesia learners out there to remember and anticipate that oftentimes your surgeons are not going to know these max doses. They're going to ask over the drape at the end of the case, hey, how much local can I give? And so it's, again, reaching beyond the exams. These are important numbers to know for boards and exams, but you're going to see this on the on a daily basis when a surgeon says, uh, how much quarter percent bupivacaine can I give at the end of the case? And you'll need to to have that as a ready answer. So, you know, keep these close at hand, you know, make some notes um, on your phone or whatever to take with you to the OR and be ready to run through those calculations because it's stuff that you're going to use every day. Right, exactly. It's all about taking what you learn in class and um, applying it to the actual clinical real world situations. That's why we're here. So that's all I have on local anesthetics. Uh, I hope that I helped some of the SRNAs and maybe even CRNAs out there uh, with some of that basic local anesthesia knowledge and um, hope that it helped. Well, Skylar, I, I think this was a, a really great rundown. Uh, we hit the core highlights from all the way from nerve fiber and anatomy and physiology of conduction through the, the key and most important aspects of the mechanism of action of local anesthetics. I think you gave a, a great rundown on PKA and its relevancy to what we're doing um, on, a, on a practical daily basis in the OR. So I think this was a, a really good talk and uh, for our SRNAs who are learning and uh, frankly for CRNAs to go back and refresh on this core information. So nice job and thanks so much for putting time and energy into this. Yeah, thanks for having me.